Welcome, everyone, to the REST podcast, where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion, chaos, and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life. I am your host, Natalie Williams, and I am here with the author of The Reconstitution Method for Healing and Rest, Virginia Dixon. Shantae Feldham, I am so excited to have you as our guest today. I read your book when it was first came out. How many years ago was that? It came out in 2004. The original edition okay, so came out a long time ago. It's 18 years now. Yep. Wow. Well, I read it when it came out. And I want you to know that I probably gave out, I don't know, 50, 60, <laughs> maybe 100 copies of it. And every group, well, it it was just spot on and it was so insightful. And I know there's been a rewrite since, but I thought for the benefit of our listening audience, you could just walk us through this book in a nutshell. I think you really reveal something precious, sacred, valuable important about the heart of men. Yeah. And you do it with so much integrity and so much clarity and so much simplicity yet immediately accessible. The material is immediately accessible to all who read it. So I want you to just take us through this book that really gives us a window into the soul of men. Yeah. Well, I should probably start by sharing how I got this information. Right? I mean, because yes. that's so Please. people know. Because <laughs> it, it, this has definitely been an unexpected thing. I mean, the book, unexpectedly, it didn't just become a bestseller. It's gone all over the world. It's in 26 languages. It turns out men are men all over the world. Different creatures in many ways. And what I was focusing on in this was uncovering the subtitle really is, it says it all because it's what you need to know about the inner lives of men. And it started actually, because ironically, I was actually writing a novel. One of the main characters in the novel was a man and I didn't know how to put thoughts in his head. Like I had to say what my main character was thinking, right? Um, right? I couldn't just say what he was doing. And I realized I have no clue <laughs> what a guy would be thinking. And some of these situations that I had my main character in were pretty personal. And so this entire thing started because I would ask Jeff, my husband, or we'd be out to dinner with another couple, you know, and I'd go to the other guy and I'd be like, okay, can I interview you? (laughs) There's a scene in the book and I need to know what my character would be thinking. And so I would say, what would you be thinking? You know, if this was you in this particular situation. And as I started to hear from like normal average guys, I found myself so surprised by some of the things that I was hearing. And I did more of these conversations and realized, you know what, what I'm hearing, it's not just surprising. It's really fundamental, like really foundational. The things that they were saying 
were things that were in their hearts, things that they were thinking. It's not just like once a month. It's like every day, multiple times a day. And, you know, I had been married at that point for seven, eight years. And I'm like, why did, why have I not heard this before? And, and so that led me to kind of put my analyst hat on. I used to be an analyst on wall street. That's kind of my, my background is research and analytics. And so I think that hat went back on and long story, but God made a way for me to uh, do a massive nationally representative survey of men And then that led to another one and another one. And now, you know, men and women and kids and, and now over the last 18 years, um, we've now done, we've interviewed and surveyed more than 40,000 men and women and have been continuing to add. And as I understand it, you have worked with some of the top statistics companies, research companies in the country. Yes. In order to do surveys well, and in order to get really good data, it needs to be a high quality group of people that you're surveying. One of the biggest concerns that anybody should have when looking at how research is done is who are they surveying and how how good quality is the data? Um, Because you can like I could do a survey of my followers on Facebook, for example, And, you know, I might learn some interesting things, but I couldn't say, oh, this is how people think. How did you determine who you would survey? How did you maintain the integrity of your research from the onset? Yeah. So the way that we always do it, and we've done it for all of our surveys, we just finished our 12th big sort of nationally representative survey set. The way that we've done it is we hire a survey company that has what's called a panel. And if they have a panel, these are people who are being compensated for taking surveys and they know everything about them. So for example, if we need to survey a 44-year-old African-American man, I know that I'm surveying a 44-year-old African-American man as opposed to a 17-year-old girl that's just taking online surveys for kicks, right? That's right. And and they have to be online because the types of questions that we're asking are very sensitive and very personal. And it's not something you're going to answer honestly over the phone. And so we need to know who you're surveying. And there's all sorts of quality controls that you put in place. Like, for example, it's really common for people to try to just speed through surveys because they just want to get it over with. And so we cut those people out. The survey should have taken you 12 minutes. It took you seven. There is no way you read the questions. And so that person goes away. It's doing high quality surveys is a, is a science as well as an art. Just want your listeners to know that's really an emphasis of what we have done is to try to make sure that when I tell you, this is what men tend to think. I'm saying that because over the course of 18 years and interviewing and surveying 20,000 men, no, statistically, this is how men tend to think. I haven't read the book in a long time. I revisited it recently in preparation for this interview. And I realized what a significant portion of my work, your research substantiates. Interesting. So I want to thank you. Yeah. 
for doing it with so much integrity because I can trust it. So thank you for that. I'm looking forward to having a separate conversation with you about that. Love is not enough. Yeah. Women, we, women pour, we pour our hearts and soul into relationships, whether it's with, you know, our children, our husbands, our friends, but it's not enough. Explain that to us. I want to go through as many of the chapters as we can, or at least let's hit the ones that you think are pivotal, having been at this so long. So there's two chapters back to back at the very beginning, and they overlap so much. Let me actually just mention the next chapter along first, because it can set it up well for for this conversation, since we don't have as much time as you do when reading a book. Um, Yeah, the performance of a lifetime. Yeah. And live love is not enough. Yes. So okay. one of the most important things that we've now seen in both men and women, this is not just one gender, right? But all of us, it turns out, have some pretty deep like insecurities and vulnerabilities sort of running underneath the surface. Deep attachment wounds. Yeah. Yeah. They can be triggers for things. They can just be deep sucking needs where you're looking for something. It can be all sorts of factors underneath the surface. But one of the main things that we tend not to realize in a relationship with one another is that our spouse actually has different insecurities, most likely, than we do. And that some of that's just because they're a different person. But a lot of it statistically is because the opposite sex tends to have two different sets of kind of primary insecurities that are running under the surface. The easiest way to explain this is is to say, and, and by the way, let me make sure I say this at the very beginning. This is not universal. It's not 100% of men and 100% of women. It's about 75 to 85% of men and 75 to 85% of women, depending on the topic. But I just want to make sure everybody hears me say that, you know, if 75% of men said this way, by definition, 25% didn't, (laughs) right? Everybody's an individual. And so this is just a starting point. One of the things underneath the surface that is so crucial for us to recognize about each other is, so what are those insecurities that might be in my spouse's heart that aren't quite as big of an issue in mine? And so here's the the starting point statistically is that for women, our insecurity, our question, it tends to be sort of, am I lovable? Like, am I special? Am I beautiful? And you can kind of sum it up with this concept of, am I worthy of being loved for who I am on the inside? And so as a result, for us as women, that's one of the reasons we love to feel loved, right? Like, we love it when our man says, I love you to us, or we love it when, you know, maybe he puts his arm around us while we're sitting at church, because that says, you're mine. (laughs) right? It, it speaks to that thing under the surface that's, that's wondering that. And we are very surprised often as women, when we don't recognize that for our husband or our boyfriend, or even our son, right, this isn't just romantic relationships. We don't recognize that for him, it's a completely different question. That's the big deal under the surface. 
And that for him, it's not so much, am I lovable, but am I able? Am, am I adequate? Do I measure up, right? Do I have what it takes? If, if our question can kind of be summed up as women as, am I worthy of being loved for who I am on the inside? A guy's question is much more, am I any good at what I do on the outside? And that lends itself then to a completely different set of sort of emotional factors, things that really speak to that. You know, for me as a wife, if, if Jeff texts me a message in the middle of the day that says, oh, this day has been so hard. I can't wait to get home to you tonight. I love you so much. I'm so glad you married me. I'm so thank you for saying yes. I am going to screenshot that text message <laughs> because it's it is speaking directly into my insecurity for a man hearing that stuff. Like, I love you so much, you know, whatever. That's nice. It's not that that's bad. That's nice, but it doesn't speak to what's under the surface. And so that is where you were talking about that first chapter of your love is not enough is for him. What he is longing for is what speaks directly to that insecurity. I want to thank you so much for addressing that chapter two and chapter three, the overlap. And I really appreciated what you said about 75 and 85% of both men and women line up with your findings. And also, I think the thing of particular interest to me was the reference you made to attachment, the issue of worthiness with women Mm -hmm. and the issue of ability being able with men and men respect women, just being fundamentally loved. I think those are so simple and accessible things to really delve into and learn to understand and big deals, but it lends itself. And the reason why, you know, when I do women's conferences or when Jeff and I do marriage conferences or whatever, and we're talking about these topics, because, you know, we talk about other topics as well. But when we're talking about these specifically, one of the things that we always try to do is to give the super practical, like, okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because again, we're not necessarily as good at doing what our spouse needs. We're kind of better at doing what we need, (laughs) right? And And so, for example, what we tell women is that, okay, so now you know that there's this vulnerability down under the surface and this self-doubt about your, that your husband has about, am I any good at what I do, right? What does that mean? How do you speak to that? Because it's more obvious how you speak to it for a woman, right? Like saying, I love you. Like I was saying, that, that speaks directly to the woman's question of am I lovable? (laughs) Am I worthy to be loved for who I am? And so for what speaks to the, am I any good at what I do on the outside stuff for a guy? What, what is that? That's where we found this astonishing thing that men, and this was three out of four men, it was 74%. It wasn't a hundred, right? So, but 74% of men said, you know, what I need so much is appreciation and respect and affirmation. I need that so much that I'll give up love if I have to. Not that anybody would want to, but I'll give up love in order to get that kind of appreciation and respect. 
And so we went looking for what do you do practically every day? What does that look like for uh, the average wife whose husband is in that category? And what we found after it took us a while, but what we found, believe it or not, is that literally saying thank you to your husband is kind of like him saying, I love you to you. It speaks directly into that deep question. And, and it is as simple, it is as simple, this is going to sound really silly. It is as simple as you walking out into the hallway in the morning and realizing that the light bulbs that had been burned out that were driving you nuts and yeah. so the hallway is dark. He's changed the light bulbs. He'd gotten up on a ladder. Oh, wow, there's light bulbs on. For me, I hate to say this, but I often am like, oh, that's so nice of him. And then I go about my day. And it is dramatically different. If you will go downstairs, see your husband in the kitchen and go, thank you for changing those light bulbs. That was driving me nuts. And for him, here's what that does. He's got this deep question of, I want to be a good husband, but am I? I want to be a good dad. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Am I any good at what I do on the outside? My wife just came down and said, I noticed what you did on the outside and it was good. And I appreciate it. And that for a guy is like, oh, it just fills him up in all these ways he's questioning. That's amazing. That's so good. And it's so simple. It's just that we tend to not do it. We found in one of our studies, get this, we found that the average person thinks that they say words of affirmation or appreciation or whatever, two to three times a day. That's kind of the average sort of the guess. When we actually did a study in, for people to track how often that they actually did, it's more like two to three times a week. And so we think these things, we just don't necessarily say it. Yeah, I think it, it, we have to develop some routine of being intentional, whether it's before you leave home, during the day, or even when you both come home again, to just be intentional about saying one, two, three kind things that. in the morning I and the evening. That. Yeah, <laughs> yes. something we ration. I mean, we plan everything else out. Well, yeah, I love it until it becomes a habit. Yes. Well, and there's another piece of that actually, too, that's just as important. We don't recognize also just how often we're sending the opposite message. Like, not only are we not saying the affirming sort of appreciative things for stuff he does well, we're pointing out the stuff he does poorly. And we don't, we don't intend to be mean. We don't intend to like stick a knife into his heart. We just, we don't recognize, you know, that that's what we're doing. Like the kids were freezing. Why didn't you give them their coats before they went off to school? We don't recognize, like there's a legitimate question to be asked there, but how we do it, it's, and I'm sure you tell people this all the time. It's not so much what we say as how we say it. Like, thanks so much for getting the kids off to school. And, you know, just, just, you know, it ended up getting a lot colder. So maybe, you know, while we're still waiting for spring to arrive, let's just send their coats every day, just in case. 
And as opposed to what were you thinking? You're such an idiot kind of is the otherwise that's what's going to be heard. So good. Okay. Tell us about the thinker and then the loneliest burden. So yeah, (laughs) chapter four, what's the thinker all about? So this is actually the new chapter that was put into for women only in the new edition, because we'd learned so much since the original edition came out. And this was one of them, which is it turns out that men actually process very, very differently on average than the average woman does. And it causes all sorts of issues that we don't realize are there because for us as women, and this is, and you do neuroscience, so you get this, the average woman is more likely her brain is wired to think things through by talking them through, right? Like that's, there's all sorts of neuroscience behind this and it has to do with the connections and stuff that you know that I don't. Like I try to read these neuroscientific studies and my eyes roll back in my head and it takes me a long time. But that is very common. Women are much more likely to think something through by talking it through. We don't realize that for a man, if he's being confronted with a decision, oh my gosh, you know, the refrigerator is going out and, you know, my sister's birthday party is on uh, Saturday and there's all this food that's in the fridge that I've been, you know, it's going to get spoiled. We need to figure out what to do about the refrigerator. And so we will start talking about all the different options and our husband starts walking away and goes, I can't, I can't, I need to, I need to think. And it's like, we're thinking, don't walk away from me. I need to engage. You don't care. And instead we don't realize that for the average man, he, his brain is wired exactly the opposite of ours. For most men, they can't think something through while they're talking it through. They need to process internally instead. And so the act of talking is preventing me from thinking if I'm a guy. And so I need space. I need to go into another room and sit and think for a minute. That is so weird to me as a woman, because if I need to think through something that's complicated, I instinctively seek out somebody that I can talk to. For us as a woman, the issue is working with how men are wired in this way, rather than being A, being clueless, or B, working against it. It means, yeah, I need to be able to talk something through with you. And then I need to give you some space because we need to figure out what to do about the refrigerator. He's not going to be able to figure that out until he gets space to think about it for a few minutes. And then we can come back and talk about it. That concept, that pattern, whatever you want to call it, is so common. And that dynamic is so common between husbands and wives. It's not everybody. Like my daughter, my daughter is a college student. She's in her first like serious relationship and she is the one who needs to get away and process. Yeah, It happens. It's not a hundred percent, but I can't remember what the numbers were, but it was like 82% or something of men. They need that internal processing time before they can come back and talk about it. That just let me process this and get back to you can calm her nerves because when he can understand that makes her anxious 
And she can understand that he needs processing time. But this is where with rest, I talk a lot about personal responsibility and engaging in all relationships, reconciling the conflicts within yourself. So with this book that you've written is so fantastic, but I think it helps each individual take responsibility for themselves. So for the men that are listening, just to say, I need to process this and the women processors to tell your husband, let me process this. You know how I need to digest this. I'll get back to you, but then make sure you get back to them, whether it's at the end of the day or the next day or this weekend, but get back to it. We haven't talked about it, but the companion book and the companion research project is called for men only, right? It's to help men understand women. And one of the simplest things that we found um, about women actually helps explain some of this dynamic with the processing, which is to help men understand and to help a woman understand herself. We call them open windows. (laughs) And for the easiest way of explaining this is think about a computer desktop that has a bunch of windows open, Yeah, you know, a bunch of different documents and things. If you think about a male brain, A male brain is likely to be more like a computer desktop that has one window open at a time. Like he works on that thing. He processes that thing. He clicks the X. It goes away. He opens the next window, the next thought, the next feeling, the next thing he's pondering in his head. For a woman, it's more like our desktop has 10 windows open all at the same time. And we're all the time. Yeah, between all of them. And this is where my husband, Jeff, always says this in marriage conferences and it it makes people crack up because he's like, and also women, it's almost like your desktop hasn't been infected with a virus <laughs> because, because a window will, a worry or something that she doesn't want there pop up and she clicks the X, that worry about what the kids are doing or whatever. And it goes away, but it pops right back up or it doesn't go away at all. And that open window, we call it for a woman of what she's worried about, like the refrigerator, right? Are, is all the food that I've cooked for my sister's birthday party going to defrost before we figure it out? Is it going to be ruined before we figure out what to do about this refrigerator? And so yeah. that's an open window. And so for her to be able to tell her husband, I've got an open window. Can we process this? I know you need space to think but can we come back together and talk about it? Because I need to be able to close this window. That's the kind of thing that is so good for helpful for a guy to know and for a woman to know both. What do you think is the loneliest burden? You have a whole chapter on that. The loneliest burden is the title of the chapter on another deep emotional thing in the hearts of men that women tend not to realize, which is how much, they feel a burden to be the provider. And this, by the way, it doesn't change just because we're in sort of a modern era where it is, I think it was 20, in one of our surveys, it was like 27 or 28% of couples, the wife earns more than the husband. Wow. Is that the statistics? I, I would have to look it up, but in our book, we have a book called Thriving in Love and Money that Jeff and I put out a couple of years ago. And um, that statistic is in there. I can't remember what it is right this second, but it was something like that. 27, 28%. 
of marriages where it's actually that the wife earns more. Now, obviously, that means that in most, the husband still earns more. <laughs> You're still, you know, three out of four, that the, the man is the higher earner. But still, even in those marriages where he's not as high income of an earner as she is, it doesn't change his feeling at all that it's still my job to provide. It's this very deep emotional thing that is hard for many women to um, quite get because we care about, you know, providing for the family too. We care about money. Like one of the things we found in that study is that, for example, you know, the stereotype that the men are the savers of the women or the spenders, that is completely not true. Just as likely to be savers and spenders. The wife is just as likely to be the one that cares more about like the budget, for example. It doesn't change that it's my job to provide. And it's always in the back of his mind. We found 70 something percent of men, I can't remember what the number was, it was around 70, said it's always there. Like it's, It's either on the front of mind all the time or always in the back of their mind that hanging over their head. And the weird thing for me as a woman is that the men are kind of like, yeah, and I wouldn't want it any other way. Like I, this is me as a human. This is my identity is me providing for you. Yeah, it is. Just their anatomy speaks for that. You know, they were, I mean, hunters, they provided, they shelter, they protect, they do, they get. Thank you for just addressing that briefly, that the need to provide, regardless of who's bringing the money, (laughs) is something that weighs in the mind of a man, weighs, uh, I think, on his heart, too. The thing that was so powerful, well, there are many things about, you know, both of these research projects, both the overall one and the one about money in particular, is just how much it's an emotional thing for guys, just how much we think of it as more of a technical thing, like, oh, is he, you know, what's his paycheck? And what's our budget going to be? And what's the, you know, that kind of logistical, technical, do we have enough money to pay the bills kind of deal. And we don't see it as this giant emotional cliff it's like for him standing on the edge of a cliff and he feels like he may not be enough to keep the family from being pulled over the cliff and being dashed on the rocks and so he's going to try to do everything he can to stay away from the edge of that cliff that emotional cliff and so that means often like working a lot of hours right or you know, answering all the boss's text messages, even when he's on vacation, because he's trying to stay away from what he sees as a real cliff. Like I would look at my husband's job when we were living in New York and he would work these insane hours at a law firm in the city. And I'm like, they love you. You know, you can say no, like, I'm going to spend Sunday afternoon, you know, with my family and, or I'm going to go on a vacation and like, you can do that. Like they appreciate you. You're, you're good at your job for him. Absolutely not even an option to say no, because we had all the student loan debt and he really felt like he could be pulled over the edge of that cliff. Like he wasn't maybe going to be good enough. And so that's a big emotional disconnect 
between a lot of men and women. And I will say we women need to, part of it is our understanding this and appreciating that burden, right? And saying thank you for fighting the traffic every day and going and providing for the family and how much we appreciate that. Part of it is that because that sort of feeds into some of what we were talking about earlier that, you know, I'm that he feels seen and noticed in the areas that he's insecure about. But it also there is an element for the husband recognizing of where that fear comes from, and that it may not always be logical. And that it's there is a need to go, okay, I recognize I feel like I'm going to be pulled over the cliff and that I need to answer my boss's text messages at midnight. But actually, all that's doing is training my boss to think that I'm always available 24 seven. And having boundaries is okay. And I'm not going to get fired. Like I may feel like I'm going to get fired. But I'm not going to get fired. Not for that. Because yeah, and I like I appreciate you saying that. Because we can't take these obvious differences as license for really maladaptive behavior that is not productive, because it leads into chapter six, sex unlocks a man's emotions. Well, if his emotions are already in a knot over his performance at work and being liked and accepted and not being compromised at work, it is affecting his sex life at home because he's not home. And so to some extent, and, and it's that fine balance between those things, because if he's neglecting the family to preserve his mental sanity and emotional state with his job, his sex life is going to suffer yeah. because his wife can't be up at midnight when he comes home, when she's got to get up at 530 with the kids. I mean, it's just tough dynamic and it's okay for a month or two or a year or two. But you add 20, 30 years into this and it gets exhausting. Yeah. So herein lies, I think, the problem that I see often. And by the way, after being married 40 years, you know, to to a man who is a workaholic, frankly, (laughs) right? This was not an easy transaction either. Do you know what I mean? For the one, it's it's a complicated thing. It is. The So on the sex side of things, and this is actually our latest research project, and we've done a lot more on this topic recently. One of the things that a lot of women need to switch, we need to switch in our minds, quite urgent for many of us, is this misunderstanding where we instinctively think of sex as meeting primarily a physical need for a man right? Like it's a physical need. It's a physical urge. And that's the category we mentally put it in. And instead, one of the sort of most crucial things that we found in this research, which by the way, we've continued to see it in the later research as well, is that the importance of physical intimacy for a man is actually primarily emotional, not physical. It's an emotional need to feel that his wife desires him and that she wants him. And that speaks, that feeling that his wife desires him, that she wants him, it speaks to that insecurity we were talking about earlier. It's one of the key ways that he has a lot of self-doubt and feels disconnected and feels 
incapable and unable to be the husband he wants to be, to be the dad he wants to be. And there is something about physical intimacy that goes right to the heart of that for most men, right? Like not all, but goes right, right, right. right. How do you address, we just did a whole month during Valentine's Day on a segment with Dr. Sherry Keffer on intimate deception. There's so much betrayal and deception and addiction, pornography and all kinds and technology, frankly, people go to bed with their devices on. So how do you counsel or advise people in this? Because if there is that emotional need, but there are seeds of betrayal there, it blows all this out of the water. So I just want our listening audience to be clear that you're not disregarding those things you're talking about natural, instinctive, pretty much these universal statistics that you're finding about the sensitivities of men, right? And women. It is, it is very important to say that they're in everything that we've said, actually, not just on the sex topic, but on Mm -hmm. everything, we are talking about sort of the majority of marriages with the normal day to day issues. When you get into some situations that are really significantly troubled and there's become a lot of dysfunction around it. And like, for example, a pornography addiction, like there's probably a pornography addiction that's happened. Who knows? There may have been codependent behavior that, you know, has risen up. There could be all sorts of now there's a lack of trust. There there could be so many things that sort of circle around that. That's not going to be the type of relationship in which you can apply these things in the same way. You need to have somebody who is a counselor, a leader, somebody who's trained to be able to, okay, let's figure out where we're stuck here. And it doesn't change the emotional needs under the surface, but the application of what you do about it is going to be completely different. I do think that this is a wonderful resource for women only, not just because of what it tells us about men, but I think it can also help a woman develop, establish, cultivate, perhaps protect healthy boundaries in a marriage as it pertains to herself. Because sometimes, although we're talking about men, it gives us a window into what's acceptable and yeah. Yeah, I do Actually, the, the biggest criticism that we get from people who read for women only, because you know, you get 100 good comments, and you might get one or two that are angry or upset. When that happens, there's a seed of truth and, you know, sort of a need to understand that the reason that they tend to be upset is that there's a misunderstanding of you're saying it's all my fault, or I'm the one who has to do everything. It's like, no, No. it's a book for women. (laughs) And there's four men. And the concept, that's right. But there's a key concept in there that you just referenced that is really that is actually true. And it comes from that concept that we can only change ourselves, right? You can't change the other person. But that also means that some of that change, if there is dysfunction, then it gives you a window into, okay, some of that change means now I know these things. And I have to actually set up boundaries, not leave in and not give him more of what he needs because he's insecure, but and try harder and just try harder. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And so now I know where the boundaries need to happen. And so it's, 
even though the book is for and the research and everything is based on kind of the average relationship, the application will be different. And some of that application is going to have to be boundaries. Words for your heart. What your man most wishes you knew about him. Would you close us out? Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that as the yeah. last one. Because this, like, it made me yeah. cry, honestly, when I got the surveys back. Because I had actually asked all the men on the survey, like, okay, if there's one thing you think your wife doesn't know, but you want her to know, basically, like, you wish she understood, think she doesn't understand. And I was... I was getting ready. I had written that as an open-ended question. I was going to make a list of all of the problems and like figure out what the top one was. And instead, top answer by far, the most important thing I wish my wife knew is how much I love her. Like it was so sweet. It was the cry of the heart of these men. Not, you know, I want more sex or whatever, (laughs) whatever it was. The, the heartbeat of men is wanting to sort of say, I know I don't always show it well, but I, how much I adore my wife. So that was just so how much I struggle. So good. And really being in counseling so many years and how much I struggle with myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big, it's, it's a big, big encouragement for many of us as women to sort of say, okay, this gives me an opportunity to see a window into something that I hadn't seen about my man and to believe that while I'm working on it, that that it's also because he cares about me. Thank you so much for this work. It's been amazing. What an honor to meet you after almost 20 years. I'm so <laughs> excited. I'm going to put this on our website. Sure thing. Thank you. Thanks. God bless you. you. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you would like to get in touch with Shanti or discover a few more resources, you can go to her website, shantifelden.com. You can also listen to her brilliant podcast called Married with Benefits on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and RSS. Rest has an event coming up on June 10th through 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you are in that area and would like to attend a day of rest, please go to our website under events to register. For updates about rest and this podcast, please visit our Instagram or Facebook, The Place of Rest. If you'd like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate or call 949-289-5935. Thank you for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. We'll see you next Friday. <laughs>